I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Ray Archuleta, Gabe Brown, and Russell Hedrick are three of the top names in soil health and regenerative ag, and they've worked together in various capacities to educate farmers about agricultural practices that improve the condition of the soil and in turn raise farm profits. They can often be found leading classes and seminars under the auspices of the Soil Health Academy or Understanding Ag. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, we caught up with Archuleta, Brown, and Hedrick at a 2019 Soil Health Academy class in Watertown, Wisconsin, and had a chance to chat with them about some of the concepts taught in the seminar, as well as experiences they've had that got them thinking in a new way about our ecological systems. Join me in welcoming from Understanding Ag and Soil Health Academy, certified professional soil scientist, Ray Archuleta, farmer, rancher, author, and speaker, Gabe Brown, and first-generation farmer and field consultant, Russell Hedrick. So the name of this class is Ecological Nutrient Management. What new concepts are you teaching to these producers? Let's hear from Gabe Brown first. So what we decided to do, we being Soil Health Academy, is we realized that we could not cover in our three-day schools the whole gamut of everything from, from the soils to the plants to the animals to the nutrient cycle, water cycle, and mineral cycles. So we decided we needed to break that up. Well, this particular area where we're at here in southern Wisconsin, there's a real focus on nutrient management from the standpoint of uh, farmers are spending too much on nutrients and inputs, not getting the return that's necessary for them to be profitable. Plus, from an ecological standpoint, uh, the watersheds are being negatively affected in many cases from the overapplication of nutrients. So we decided let's put on a school for three days, focus just on nutrient management mm-hmm. and what producers can do to hold those nutrients on their land, cycle them in a more natural way rather than spending all the money on inputs. And Russell, what do you think? I think ecological nutrient management is a really good word that Ray Archuleta came up with. Um, For me, it's about nutrient management. Um, You know, one of the most expensive things in a farmer's budget is fertility. If you grow corn, it takes a lot of fertilizer. Uh, The problem is, is traditional tests, 
that we've been using, you know, the last 30, 40 years really don't take into account of one, what's already there. Uh, what are we seeing from organic matter breakdown? Uh, what are we seeing from biology um, releasing these nutrients in the soil that are inherently already there? And then it even goes into something that a lot of farmers have heard the bud buzzword of the legacy load. And so if we're applying phosphorus fertilizer, typically only 10% of it is mineralized in the first year. So if you've applied phosphorus fertilizer for the last 10 years, if we can unlock the nutrients that are there, we've got enough for the next 100. And phosphorus fertilizer every year continues to go up in price and cost farmers more and more money. And we've got to find out a way that we can cut back on nutrients and use nature instead of you know spreading it on a field. How about you, Ray? So there's a huge distinction between that. Another thing we teach in the academy is we teach concepts of biomimicry. Uh, we teach mimic nature in its way. It's got a beautiful template. It's been there for mil millions of years. And it's, and it's a beautiful design and it's perfect. What we're teaching farmers, if you emulate it, work with it, understand its synergies and complementaries, you'll save money, you'll reduce your inputs. So that's what we're teaching. We're teaching biomimicry strategies and agroecology principles. We teach the principles of ecology. So when I went to college, they never fused the ecology and, and made that the framework. The framework that was taught in land-grant schools and a lot of our ag schools, chemistry, physics, mm -hmm. genetically splice it, control it, force it, manipulate it. Mm -hmm. We're teaching, uh-uh. Emulate it, understand it, nurture it. Different paradigm, total different paradigm that we're teaching that was not taught to us. For a long time, working as an agency, as, a, as an agronomist and soil scientist, um, again, we use the, the old model called the inorganic uh, model of, of nutrients. I walked away with the concept that you know, if you put your fertilizer out there and it goes into the soil water and then all of a sudden you have this mass flow of nutrients flowing and the root intercepts it and there's a diffusion between the water and that. It's like just this little perfect chemistry set and you did all these chemical equations. Wrong. Built on wrong premise. It was really the biology excreting powerful biochemistry that changed the inorganic chemistry. We're teaching an ecological model that's plant and microbially driven. The other one was a chemistry set. So it doesn't work that way. So that's why I called it ecological nutrient management from the ecology from the top to the ecology in the bottom. What does ecology mean? Ecology means relationship. Relationship of all eco the house, the relationship of all these organisms together. What are they doing? Ecology, relationship. So we're teaching producers, what is your relationship to the context in your farm, or to your, the organisms, to the life in the farm? That was never given to me as a context. We're saying eco, ecology, relationship. Even the word economics, the money of the house. We're teaching people how to mimic the house. The house is this planet. Regenerative agriculture has become a major buzzword, not just in egg, but in the world at large. For you, how does it differ from traditional conservation farming practices? So what regenerative agriculture is, it's, a, it's an approach whereby we're following the principles of nature 
in order to heal the water cycle, the mineral cycle, the nutrient cycle, and we want to heal profitability, put more profit back into the farms and ranches, allow them to gain more profit from their enterprises, all while ensuring a greater quality of life. And I think that's the major difference is that we're looking at the whole. We're looking at not only the water, not only you know the, the soils, but we're looking at overall, how do we advance their agricultural system to one that's much more enjoyable, much more profitable. I think regenerative ag just kind of replaced sustainability. You know, we used to have the buzzword sustainable and uh, it just really, it's, it's something that we're trying to actually fix instead of just maintain now. And we've got some of the science, you know, one of the great things for my generation is there's so much science behind it. I used, you know, when I first started farming, I was told it took 500 years to build an inch of topsoil. And you take somebody like Gabe Brown at his ranch and we heard yesterday that his neighbors have five inches of topsoil and he has 29 inches. And so over the last 20 some years, Gabe's actually been able to build topsoil way more than an inch every 500 years. Mm -hmm. So I think regenerative really is looking at, I think we'll rejuvenate the ground to where then it is sustainable for future generations. Um, I think we were trying to keep the status quo of not losing any more than what we used to have, but we've actually got to look at the mindset of we've got to build these systems back to like they were a hundred years ago before some of the tillage and the dirty thirties and the dust bowls came about, um, which is well before my time, but you know, you, you do hear about it. And it's crazy to me that even in my generation, 2019, we're still seeing pictures of windstorms and dust storms in the Midwest, in Kansas, Nebraska, places like that, that we saw in the dirty thirties. Um, but everybody that's been removed from agriculture for two or three generations, four generations, they don't even think about it anymore unless it makes national headlines. Um, so it's, you know, the thing that we're trying to do at, at um, Soil Health Academy and Understanding Ag is really just teach farmers that we have the technology and we have the scientific data now that we can prove that we can actually, you know, implement these practices and rejuvenate the ground and, and be in regenerative farm practices. Um, and that's, that's ultimately what's been the fun part for me is, is breaking those paradigms and showing that we can, we can change. It's never too late. Well, I think a fundamental uh, thing that's very distinct, or several, uh, one is that we teach that the soil is a living ecosystem. I think in the past where I went to college for many years, or some of the paradigms that I picked up were um, the soil is a storage tank. It's a, a you know, it's, it's a bank. You know, I can put these nutrients in there. Uh, I, I didn't really understand how the soil worked. I didn't realize it's dynamic. It's living. It's played, it's played the most complex ecosystem on the planet. So I, I first we teach farmers the soil is alive. And if they can't understand that, it's really difficult for them to change the way they do things. So the fundamental principle of our academies change the way you see things. So that's very fundamentally critical. Um, the word sustainable and regenerative have, uh, especially the word sustainable has been around for quite a while. And I, I really dislike that term because I, I'll pick somebody from the crowd and I said, well, uh, sir, how's your marriage? Well, it's sustainable. Well, that kind of sucks. But the word regenerative, if you really think about it, it's always renewing, always getting better. So if I tell the producer, how's your marriage? It's renewing. 
It's dynamic. It's always improving. I don't want to sustain what we have now. What we have globally is degraded soils all over the globe. A lot of no-tillers have been practicing conservation for decades with no-till, cover crops, erosion control, etc. What do you think they're missing in their conservation efforts? One of the issues that we found early on, and, and I've been on the road about 15 years now trying to educate and share with others the journey my family and I have been on for the past 25 plus years, it really became apparent that farmers tend to uh, put all their enterprises and look at it in a very segmented way. So they grow corn or they grow soybeans, but they're not looking at the ecosystem as a whole. How do we design our crop rotations and our livestock integration in a way that, that it, one enterprise benefits the other? And so that's what's different about the regenerative agriculture movement. It's a whole system, a whole ecosystem approach to looking at agriculture. I think a lot of times farmers are implementing these practices and, and they're doing a good job. But I don't think on our farm, we manage our cover crops just like we do our cash crops. And a lot of farmers don't want to take the time to actually manage it to that point. But if you really want to see the ultimate benefit of reducing tillage, reducing fertility, cutting back on chemicals, cutting out fungicides and insecticides, sometimes you just got to get out of your own way. Um, what I found out, you know, being I was a fireman before a farmer, farmers and firemen are creatures of habit and it's hard to get them to change their production protocol. I think a lot of the grain that is grown in the United States is really based off of revenue insurance and with the farm program that we have, it influences a lot on what farmers plant. It's the big three crops and they're ultimately a lot of farmers with margins being so low, grain prices being down and inputs being high right now, it's really hard for farmers to make that economical decision to try something new and implement another practice that if they did have a bad time with it, you know, they could see an economical impact. Ultimately, I think no-till doesn't work without the cover crops because no-till is still a monoculture. You know, there's nothing growing out there, there's no diversity. And so farmers really have to play around on what's going to work on their operation and do it themselves. And that way they get unbiased data. What we're teaching is the relationship of the ecology and bringing ecology into the forefront. And these chemical inputs only started in the 30s and 40s. And, but in the past, farmers had to depend more on working with the natural system because that's where they got their fertility from plants, from the animals. That was the approach. But then a lot of farmers, they knew it would work. Some of the things would work, but they didn't understand why it worked. We understand now why it works. We're feeding this incredible myriad of microbial life in top of the surface and under the surface. And then we're beginning to say, okay, ecology is teaching us that all these organisms are interconnected and everything's one. This is a different way of looking at things. If you look at our country, since 1935, we've been applying practices that do that have not fixed the problems. Mm -hmm. It's been done a patchwork environment. So people will say, okay, we do no-till. Big deal. No-till is not the answer. Never was the answer. It was a small part of a systems approach. No-till just stopped the destruction of the house, but we didn't teach that if you didn't put covers and you don't put enough carbon flow in through the living covers and diversity, you didn't fix anything. Mm -hmm. So it was a patchwork approach.
Now we got a holistic approach. We see the big picture. You are all big proponents of the Haney soil test. How is it different from other soil tests, and why do you put so much stock in it? I like uh, uh, one adage I heard about soil testing is that all soil tests are bad, but some are useful. And I think what it shows is there's faults in all of them. Okay, the let's, for lack of a better term, let's just say the standard soil test, the one that's been around for, for decades now that, that most producers are used to seeing, only looks at the inorganic fraction of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, the big three, so to speak. That is the water-soluble fraction. In other words, the that can be taken up by the plants. That's all it measures. So when they're doing a soil sample, it's only showing them the amount that's available in the inorganic fraction the day that test was taken. The difference with the Haney test is it also measures the organic fraction. Now scientists have discovered that plants, through amino acids and that, have the ability to take up some of that organic fraction in the soil. Then the Haney test also measures the biology in the soil. And by knowing that, they can estimate how much of that organic fraction will be converted to inorganic or plant available during the growing season. So that's a whole nother pool of nutrients that farmers, those plants on a particular field would have available to them throughout the growing season that was missing. So more often than not, in production agriculture, we're over applying nutrients by a large amount. Well, that not only costs farmers money because they're purchasing those excess inputs, but it also is not good ecologically because those excess nutrients are not being held on that farm and they end up going into the watershed and, and then we have all these problems throughout the whole watershed. So what we tell people is, the Haney test, in our opinion, is the best test out there today to show, show farmers how much nutrients they have at the time that test was taken and will have available throughout the growing season. So it's the best tool out there today. So I believe in soil health. I believe in regenerative agriculture. Ray told me about Rick Haney's test in 2012. And even as somebody who believed in it and believed in what Ray was telling me, I implemented it on my farm in 25% increments. Um, every year we would bring another 25% of our acres in, and it ultimately took our operation four years to get Haney's test on our farm. The reason I'm a big proponent on it, and one of the things we talk about today, just the fertilizer savings last year over 1,000 acres of row crop land was $72,000. That's the difference between farmers making money and losing money. You know, with the national average last year, they said the average row crop farmer in, um, in North America lost $12 per acre growing a commodity crop. So in Haney's test, I saved $72. Even if they could implement Haney's test, that means that our whole nation of, of grain farmers, instead of losing $12, could have made 60. Um, that's a lot of money when it comes to ag, ag revenue and what we're seeing um, coming back to the farmer. You know, Rick is the first soil scientist I have ever met that did not care about himself he cared about my bottom line mm -hmm. and he cares about the environment he cares about you know the farmer being profitable and being there for the next generation and and really the big place that it's different is the traditional test that we've been using like in my home state we use the melic three it uses hydrochloric acid which is a very low ph but i think it's around one and a half 
it never rains hydrochloric acid on my farm. And I never understood why we used a test that gave us a result with something that never happens in nature. It's They're forcing those bonds to break apart. Where Rick's test is different, he uses an extract called H3A, and it mimics root exudates in water. That's all my farm sees. So for me, it just kind of made sense that Rick's test is doing what I see in nature, and a conventional test is doing something that I wouldn't ever see unless it's in a laboratory setting. And so for us, it really made sense for us to use that test. And, you know, it's a biological indicator. When I, when I go speak about it, there's biological indicators that we look for, like the CO2 burst. The Germans found that out in the early 1900s. Um, there's a pretty nice book about it Rick gave to me to read. But we knew about this stuff before the Industrial Revolution, and fertilizer was cheap. And we kind of forgot about it, but now the fertilizer prices are, are starting to increase over the last, say, 10 years. It's really getting to the point where farmers are going to have to start managing those inputs. And this test is a way for us to not only get the biological indicators, but to cut back on those inputs. For years, as an agronomist, I knew that something was wrong with our nitrogen recommendations. I, and I, it, to me, it all happened on one of the farms on Jim Harbach's farm in Pennsylvania. I'll never forget that day. We were walking down his farm, and he's got a beautiful no-till. He's been doing covers for three to five years. He went to North Dakota. He saw and he had this beautiful emerald green corn. I'll never forget. His soil test said, you know, you need another 50 units. And he's got dairy manure, beautiful soils, and they asked for another 50 units. I said, that corn didn't need it. And it was frustrating to see that farmers were going broke with these nitrogen recommendations and these phosphorus and this potassium. And so I started going down this journey and I started realizing all the way back when they first started creating soil tests, that the soil tests were created on the wrong premise. It was looking at soil like a chemistry set. It was all chemistry driven. They used this very caustic acids, forcing the information. And what I loved about Rick, Rick thought this out. He says, you know what, we're approaching it wrong. If we're trying to see what the root sees, why don't we mimic the root? Well, the root uses this very gentle acids, oscillic and, and, uh, and malic and citric acids. And he says, wow, why don't we use these gentle acids? Then we'll see how much of those nutrients really come off that exchange site. Instead of forcing the answer with these caustic and the bray and the, and the, and all these other ones that I want to see what the plant sees today, not 10 or 15, 20 years. So what I'm saying is that the old soil test serves a purpose and it tells me a certain amount of information, but it doesn't tell me what I'm dealing with in a biological system because the soil is biological. So it, the old test, I think, treated it like the chemistry said that I'm going to do all these things and manipulate it. The Haney test says, no, I call it the blood sample of the soil. We're telling people use a biological test and you can use the standard soil test with tissue sample tests and all the other tools and start putting your own demonstration research calibration on your own farm. And Rick will tell you is, can the test be improved? Yes. Is it precise? No, it's impossible. Is it more accurate than what we have now? Absolutely. So that's why we're excited about it because we're able to use that tool as an indicator on how we can reduce our inputs on the farm and give the farmer confidence. That's what this is about. 
We'll come back to the guys in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. For today's two tips in the podcast, we're going to leave the United States and we're going to start out by going to Eastern Europe. Back in 1993, which was also the first year we held the National No-Tillage Conference in Indianapolis, there was an Illinois farmer, Roger Denhart, and he talked about how he planned to no-till 50,000 acres of soybeans. Yes, 50,000 acres of no-till soybeans near Odessa in the southern Ukraine in the spring of 1993. I know that Roger had some progress on there, but I think he ran into problems with getting to the 50,000 acres. And I know at one time he told me one of the problems was that the people who were running the collected farms, the managers said, yes, we believe in no-till, but if we don't work all the land, how are we gonna keep the 200 people employed here and living here with something to do? So no-till didn't go too well in that area. And I don't know what's happened since then, but I do know there's been some large scale properties and farming operations in the Ukraine, which are doing well with no-till. And in fact, they sent some people to our early no-till conferences. The other thing that happened in 1994 was in Russia, and this is when uh, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant explosion happened, and all that, all the people living nearby had to move, and that land was condemned. There was talk at one time among some Canadian researchers that they thought they could use no-till to bring back 11 million acres of farmland that was destroyed there, but I don't know what happened with that. Now let's get back to Ray, Gabe, and Russell of Understanding Ag and the Soil Health Academy. So what are some of the specific things that people are getting out of the seminar? What we're showing them and what we've seen and visiting with them uh, this week is that many of them have not, although they're doing no-till, no-till is a tool, that's good. They're doing cover crops. That's a tool. That's good. But we're helping them learn how to design the proper mix in order to take that energy, that solar energy out of the atmosphere, pump that carbon into the soil and fuel that nutrient cycle, that mineral cycle. So they're learning to think in a whole systems approach. They're also learning how to use the Haney test in order to determine can they back off on their their synthetic input needs. And then we're also teaching them about pest management. How do we grow covers in order to have the pollinator insects, the predator insects that will benefit their system? So toll systems approach this week. It's taken it to their knowledge base to another level. You know, no-till and cover crops are a good start, but at the end of the day, that's really just conserving soil loss and Really, we've, we've got to look at making farms profitable again. Um, if a farmer 
If my farm made $20 an acre, I'd find another job. Farming is a very re rewarding um, occupation. I don't really consider it work. But at the end of the day, for my farm to be here next year, I've got to make more than 20 bucks an acre. I mean, ultimately, the farmers have to have the tools that they need to be able to make these adjustments on their operations. Because what Gabe does in North Dakota doesn't work for me in North Carolina, and what I do in North Carolina is not going to work here in Wisconsin. But, you know, we talk about the five and six key principles and the four processes. And I always like it when farmers say, oh, that won't work here. And my, my thing, I stole it from Adam Daughtery in Tennessee, but uh, if the sun shines on your farm, the five principles apply. And uh, that's ultimately where farmers have to get out of their own way. A lot of them have been doing no-till for quite a while. Some of them have. But what they have not been doing is the covers with the animal integration. Okay. And so what I want them to take away is a systems approach. The more you apply those five principles, see, sometimes producers will start with one principle, come with two, and then they'll incorporate more and more. It's a progression. Mm -hmm. I want them to walk away, you be your own scientist. Mm -hmm. Trust no one, not even us. Mm -hmm. You do your own research on your place, on your, you become a farmer scientist. Mm -hmm. That's what I want them to wake up, walk away with it. I want them to walk away with confidence, to build community, that we that we are not by yourself, that we're here to help you out. Don't do this by yourself. It's too complex, it's too elegant. But if they work together in a community-based concept and to help, each, uh, help themselves out, they will change their world. We have producers now that have reduced their inputs by 80%. That is huge. But you cannot do it if you do not apply the principles religiously. What about the people who are just getting started with regenerative agriculture? It seems like a lot to tackle. What's your advice for getting started? We deal with a lot of producers who are just starting to move down this path. So we like to say we take people where they're at. So what's their comfort level? You know, and, and I, when we approach people, we say, well, what will allow you to sleep at night? You know, dedicate that number of acres for five years. So some people say, oh, I've got a five acre field over the hill here that my neighbors can't see. I'll, I'll dedicate that field for five years. Then we apply those uh, five principles of a healthy ecosystem, focus on the four ecosystem processes, and they start there. Now you have other people who they just hear about it. They go, this makes perfect sense. I can do half my farm the first year. You know, so you have to take people where you're at, where they're at and allow them to gain the confidence to move forward. I mean, the first thing is, is, is um, we say cut the tillage out. Um, and, and I do understand there are crops even in my home state where we have to till the ground, sweet potatoes, tobacco, um, but then we tell them if you can't cut tillage out, then look at frequency and intensity. Um, if we can cut the frequency down and, and maybe change the tillage tool type to where it's the, the intensity isn't as bad, you know, it's that chronic or, or acute stress. Um, so we first start there. Then we try to integrate cover crops for diversity, uh, the liquid carbon pathway, taking sunlight, um, making it into carbon in the soil solution. And then once they do that, just be a student. Everybody's operation's different. Um, all these cattle guys here that have dairies, they need feed. Um, and there are times that we've worked with dairy farmers that they've had to bail a little bit of their cover crop. 
Did it set them back on the following cash crop? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, they had mouths to feed. Um, and don't be too hard on yourself. You know, this isn't a silver bullet. You're going to have failures. I've had failures. Try not to talk about them too much. You know, when you look at somebody's Facebook page, everything's always good. You don't put the bad stuff there. But, you know, just understand you're going to have failures and find people who are doing it near you. And when I say near you, you know, in your region, there's guys in Georgia, Alabama, uh, the upper end of Florida, South Carolina, Tennessee that I talk to all the time. And it's it's almost like a, a network, a peer network that, you know, if somebody tries to get me to do something, I run it by a few guys before we implement it and see if they've ever done it before. And, and having that peer network of people who are doing the same thing really has helped us uh, stay away from some of the challenges and some of the, the issues that some other guys have had. The most difficult thing to change is the way you think. All of us have to go through a journey of progressive revelation. All of us have to go through an aha moment. Some of us, it was through failure that we saw where we were heading. One of the most important things to realize and ask yourself a really brutal question, is your system really working? You have to ask those self-penetrating questions and that wraps around the word humility. I have said in front of a large group of people, I was failing. I gave it bad advice. Game almost went broke. The beautiful thing is about bringing people like Russell in, these young farmers, they didn't have to make all these mistakes. They believed and followed. This made sense. These producers you see out here in this class, they're going through their aha moment. And it was the soil demonstrations, the right context, the right premise, the right approach made them think, changed the way they look things. Those farmers changed the way they see things. And until you have that change, nothing else is going to happen. And then you keep it to very simple look. What do I tell people about what the soil really needs? It needs three things. Really does. Living plants. Diverse living plants, diverse living animals, that means the insects and the animals, and the third one. Stop disturbing that so much. Let it do its business. Careful the way you spray your manures. Careful the way you use your, uh, your fertilizers, your herbicides, and your pesticides, and your chemical fertilizer. Careful with your tillage. Careful with your tools. The tools are destroying your ecosystem. Because, but really, is it really the tools or is it you? I tell producers, look in the mirror. You're the problem. A majority of our problems is we lack the understanding. So we teach you different mindset so that you pick up a different, so you learn the skill set and then you apply the tools correctly. Finally, what's your outlook for the ag community as a whole to address market and environmental pressures? After all, there are people who say too little, too late. My outlook on ag is twofold. The quote unquote conventional model is in serious trouble and it will continue to be so for a number of reasons. Low farm profitability, whether we're talking about nitrification in our watersheds, whether we're talking about phosphorus issues there, or whether we're even talking about human health because of the lack of nutrient density in our foods. Uh, all of those things 
can be addressed by regenerative agriculture. Also, you know, you hear a lot of talk about climate change and all oh, the, the problems with climate change and Earth's going to come to an end, etc. All that shows is we have too much carbon in the atmosphere, not enough in our soils, in the cycle, and carbon is a cycle. Nothing is better suited to address that than regenerative agriculture. And so I'm very, very confident, not 99%, I'm 100% confident that regenerative agriculture can and does have the ability to positively impact all of those in a very short time. Okay. We would really see a major impact if we have 25% of the farms and ranches in the United States practicing regenerative agriculture. The good news is, is that I think we're on the verge of an explosion in regenerative agricultural practices. I've been at this long enough. I travel extensively and see it. And when you get companies such as General Mills and Annie's Organics all announcing regenerative agriculture initiatives within their businesses, we're going to see it very large scale very, very soon. I think as farmers, I, t I talk about this sometimes when people ask questions like that. Um, I think as farmers, ultimately, it's up to us to do right. And the bad thing, you know, the bad thing about our government is uh, they're reactive and not proactive. So when there's a problem and there's a loud enough yell over the problem, they're going to make a change. And the last thing that I want as a farmer is somebody who does not farm to tell me how to farm. And so I really think that's why, you know, Gabe spends countless hours answering emails and phone calls. I try to do my part. Um, and there's guys all over the country, Michael Thompson and Cameron Mills and all these guys and Blake Vance up, even up in Canada. I'll give Canada a little a little success there. You know, we really do try to talk to guys about it. I don't think it's too late because even in one year, we can see a benefit of reduced soil disturbance, higher water infiltration rates, less nutrient runoff. Um, you know, it really comes down to the farmers being willing to adopt these practices and just know that, yes, some of them are harder than what our old production practices were. But at the end of the day, like I said, we don't want somebody else telling us how to farm and uh, we've got to be able to make these decisions. So I really don't think it's ever too late. Um, it's just sometimes I think people need a nudge. And I'll say one of the cool things is I traveled to Spain for three weeks and I found out over there that they can't get an operating line to farm if they don't plant cover crops. Um, so, you know, Sometimes I, I think there's going to be regulation that does come down through farm bills that I think we can really have a huge impact on conservation. And, and there's programs like EQIP and CSP through NRCS that really give farmers that are wanting to start these practices. It kind of takes away some of that economical uh, scare where it helps them pay for seed and establishing some of these covers or some of the equipment they need. So I think there's programs in place that really it's kind of a snowball effect the last two years that we're seeing more producers come on board. And that's been pretty fun. Let's see, when I met Gabe, I met Gabe in 2007. If you would have asked me in 2006 the same question, I had no hope, none. It was depressing because I knew I, was, I had been working for the agency so many years. We have spent billions of dollars cleaning water, I mean, to save the water, uh, saved the farmer, and we were failing miserably. Mm -hmm. Farmers were still going broke, mm -hmm. still had to get another job in town. As the irrigation season came in, in the Snake River, because I, I, I lived on the Idaho side, and 
and was responsible as a district conservationist on the Oregon side. Every time irrigation season came on, Snake River at our border would turn into chocolate. And I said, something's wrong. Something is very, very wrong with the system. Now I have hope, absolutely hopeful. I see an incredibly bright future for agriculture and for young people. If they farm in nature's image, if they follow the template, if, just imagine if we would all diversify. Let's imagine globally, we say, okay, the standard is the natural system. We're all going to emulate it. We're all going to do diversity. We would address, like I tell people, if you don't have a healthy soil, you don't have healthy water, you don't have a healthy plant, you don't have an healthy animal, you don't have a healthy climate, mm -hmm. you don't have a healthy person, and, and also you, you can't have a healthy checkbook. Mm. So all these things work together and they're intimately interconnected. So I have hope now. Will, it, will all these ills uh, go away right away? No, we're gonna go through a lot of pain. But if you remember the most impactful things in your life, you went through pain. So I think uh, I'm very optimistic. I have hope for agriculture now and I'm excited. For tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lesseter once more. Instead of answering a reader's question this time, I'm going to talk about a man from uh, South America, Herbert Bartz, who passed away earlier this year, and he was one of the pioneers of the no-till systems in Latin America one of the founders of the Brazilian Federation of No-Till and Irrigation. One of the things he did early on is he came up to Kentucky and talked to Shirley Phillips and some others who got him started in no-till. And one of the problems he had is uh, he was disgusted with all the problems that he was facing, crop failures, climate problems, torrential rain, severe erosion, and uh, he saw productive topsoil and soil fertility going into the river. And the tipping point was in 71 when he saw his land going out of uh, control down the river. His daughter Marie recently told me that her father actually got arrested one time for, for doing no-till. He's probably the only person I know of that's been arrested for no-tilling. Anyway, he was no-tilling soybeans in October of 1972 and it was so unconventional that people called him the crazy German who planted in the weeds. At that time, all the research was based on chemicals and fertilization due to the conventional tillage being used in agriculture. So no-till was so unexpected and breaking all the traditional rules to plant without preparing the soil that someone complained to the federal police in Brazil and they came out and they arrested Mr. Bartz and seized his first no-till soybean harvest under no-till. The federal police considered this soybean harmful to human health. Well, I think it all got straightened out and he no-tilled for many years since. Thanks to Frank, Ray, Gabe, and Russell for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. 
And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.